the thing I don't really think about is uh, at the beginning of a movie is is whether or not people will care about this. You know, um, um, I, 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 it's usually I, I want to do this movie and I'm just going to try to do it. Uh, but then after that point, and I, I, usually I end up kind of creating something that is uh, that has some uh, that has nu- numerous problems that are built into built into it so then so much of of making the film is about how to take whatever it is whatever it sort of has to be and to make it clear and to make it something that you can latch onto and follow yes and that's that's something that is just goes from from Re- rewriting the script over and over and over all the way to um, you know the day that you um, that you make the final uh, print welcome back to Rotten Rewind you know what we do every week? We talk about a film that uh, the critics uh, reviled. That didn't didn't meet the sixty percent threshold on RottenTomatoes.com, a website that apparently had an article just come out about it today that is basically saying that critics, like those critics that you've never heard of in your life, are getting paid money to write positive reviews for movies, which isn't surprising given the fact that you look at a movie like Oppenheimer on, on Rotten Tomatoes and you're like, why did four hundred people review this movie? <laughs> Why do we need 400 reviews on Oppenheimer? Someone's palms are getting greased here. They knew. They, they knew, knew. And they let it happen. I'm Max Rue. I have a co-host today that is not Courtney. I have a regular on the podcast. You know this man. You know his voice. You know the Substack. Nick Laskin, thank you for, for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. This was sort of a last minute thing, right? I mean, kind of. I would have you would always be the first person I would go to to talk about Wes Anderson. That's true. Yeah. I feel like when you offered me like my pick a few months ago or whatever, I didn't consciously didn't want to do this movie because I didn't want to like, you know, I felt like maybe I should try to focus on stuff that like isn't as close to me or does I don't have such like a personal attachment to. You're the West guy. You're the guy I go to. Who else am I? Who else am I going to call for this? Especially because this is his only rotten movie. Unless we do a, a barely fresh bonus episode on the Darjeeling Limited, which I would do, even though it's 69%. It's like, oh, wow. Really, it's, like, it's right at the very the tip of it. I'm surprised that that one wasn't more poorly received than, than Life Aquatic. Yeah, we are talking about Wes Anderson's, I think, first really major budget studio movie, The Life Aquatic. Although I know Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore are, are studio movies. No, but this is a big movie compared to all those other movies. This feels like his first like really big blank check movie where mm. it was like the Royal Tenenbaums. Like I know Rushmore was like a cult hit and it did well. It was well received. Royal Tenenbaums was the one that gets him his Oscar nomination. I think to this day, probably still the most beloved all around of his films. Probably. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he's alluded in interviews to the fact of like, if I could make the life aquatic again, like I know that we spent too much money. And yeah. lately in the last like six years, I feel like he's found a way to make great looking movies with so much detail and production design and visual beauty that never cost as much as they look like they cost. And some of that is, you know, actors taking salary cuts to work on sure. those movies. But yeah, Life Aquatic, I, I don't know uh, the budget off the top of my head, but it was an expensive movie. There's a lot of spectacle compared to some of his other stuff. Cost $50 million. Okay. That's a big budget. You know, Grand Budapest and French Dispatch and Asteroid City. It seems like they all have a cap of 25 million they all cost 25 million moonrise was lower that moonrise is at 16 darjeeling was 17 i think Um, darjeeling again based on what i've heard west talk about in interviews over the years was like a very conscious attempt to scale down from this movie because that movie feels it's i think in some ways his scrappiest movie other than bottle rocket the actors are coming to set in their costumes already having their makeup done there's not a lot of like bells and whistles and they were grabbing stuff on the go and like kind of writing the movie as they were there and this movie feels like top heavy in a way that some of his other and i i say that as uh, like I love this movie and it was so personal to me for so long, but it does feel like maybe some of that kind of the big toolbox of filmmaking gets away from him at times a little bit. 
Yeah, it seems like he was given like a little bit too much money to play with here. And it's almost like he didn't quite. It, it feels like, yeah, like here's 50 million. And he's like, I guess I'll do like a big shootout and explosion. Because right. I was like, when I watched that scene, I was like, I don't think he's ever done anything like that again. I've never seen that I can recall. No, and I remember reading an interview with him in that, in regards to that scene. And he was saying that, uh, he was like, what action directors, they were asking him, what action directors do you like? Or what action directors did you look to for the scene? And the first answer he gave was Michael Bay. And I've always felt that the thought of that guy, of Wes Anderson watching a Michael Bay movie is just so funny. But I mean, he's, you know, yeah. Grant... Grand Budapest has action scenes, but the action, I mean, this, the the sequence in Life Aquatic, it has like a little bit of grit. It, it yeah. feels more authentically Definitely. violent. Grand Budapest Hotel is by the time he makes that movie, he's so in command of that thing that ends up being the thing that people sort of deride him for that. Like True. even like, I mean, and that movie is pretty violent, but like, you know, somebody gets clipped in the shoulder in the Life Aquatic shootout and it's pretty gross. I think for just this episode in general, especially because he's an, a director that we won't really get to talk about again and because i have the number one stand on oh stop it hey man if we're (laughs) talking james gray or wes anderson no i appreciate it man. if hong sang su had a fucking rotten movie i would call you maybe he Uh, he probably does guy makes three fucking movies you would think that one of them might have had might have had to flop at some point i know i don't miss (laughs) when did you first fall in love with wes this is sort of it's a long-winded story and i'll try to condense it when i was a kid Uh, My parents, I had a hard time paying attention in like certain classes and my parents had me see a behavioral specialist. I was probably 11 or 12 and we started talking about movies because that was something that I just wanted to talk about with everybody I encountered at that point in my life. He asked me if I'd ever seen a movie called Rushmore and I said no. And maybe it was because Rushmore is about kind of a, I don't know, like a volatile young man who's not in total control of himself or has has ambitions that maybe don't exactly translate to schoolwork. In any case, I saw Rushmore. And then very shortly after that, I saw Royal Tenenbaums. And you'll appreciate this at the GCC Theater in Sherman Oaks next to the In-N-Out Burger. And my parents took me, which was very cool of them. And like, I remember knowing that it was beyond my grasp if that makes sense like i could sense there was a brilliance happening that as a as a kid i just wasn't able to totally but something about it really captivated me as i know you've had with like you know like the early films of like paul thomas anderson you see these things when you're very young and you don't exactly have the language to be like why is this moving me or why is this speaking to me in this way and then life aquatic comes out three or four years after tenenbaums and i think that was you know it's a funny thing man where like it's not my favorite movie of his anymore my favorites of his change and it has been my favorite movie of his at different points in my life it's a movie that really means a lot to me and meant a lot to me over the course of my life and i think the reason for that is it was the movie that like sometimes you watch two or three films by a filmmaker and on the second or third one you're like oh i get it something about what they do unlocks for you and i think seeing those three things and then going back eventually around to bottle rocket which is like still for me like you know top five maybe top three for for me personally there was just something about it that like yeah again i think now wes is so saturated in the culture like to the point where there's like tiktoks about him and AI trailers in the style of his movies. And, you know, back then at the risk of sounding like kind of a dick, it did feel like, oh, this is cool. Only a a select few people know about this and it's cool. And that was in a way what made Life Aquatic so cool was because it was the first movie where people were like, nah. And then like, I feel like people who were into it were like, no, you guys don't understand. This shit is great. Chris Nashadi. Yeah, I feel like, you know, a very millennial thing is um, in the mid 2000s, at least for me going to Halloween parties is, you know, couples dressing like Margot Tenenbaum and Richie Tenenbaum. I did that. We've all been to that party. We've all seen them. He makes good movies for Halloween costumes in general. Yeah, I, I think I've dated uh, three people that have dressed up as Margot Tenenbaum on, on Halloween. I don't know wow. what that says about me, but um, <laughs> that's that's a thing. We both had our Andersons growing up yep. that we fell for. And you and I and your parents are more like I feel like your dad's an actor and, and um, your mom was a she was, was a it? singer when she met yeah, my I dad. Say, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They come from like an arts background. My parents are. They were hairdresser and makeup artist, but it's interesting how I feel like 
both those directors that came to prominence at the same time and then especially came up as we were younger and getting older and growing up with their movies and for two people that really love movies and are, are obsessive about movies and I was the same way I didn't get sent to a therapist although I asked to be sent to a therapist I'm like you I was like please I think I need you to send me to one and they're like you're it, fine it was more just like I couldn't pay attention in math and instead of trying to solve the problems I would just like write little weird stories in yeah. the and and they were like I don't like get this like what what's happening get him out you know get him out of here get him out of here no but to the point of like those two filmmakers like it's been a funny thing because you and I are not the only people that feel that way but like no. an entire generation of people has grown up with those filmmakers and I think in Wes's case a lot of people have some people have left him behind because they feel like well I don't like what he do, does anymore or I feel like the magic of the early movies is not sure. there anymore and some people like you know like my parents for instance who are not huge on the first few West movies they love like the last two or three or four you know my mom kind of likes them all but pta i mean you know is someone who just has continued to refine his his genius into yeah they've kind of had opposite trajectories where they both are like those two guys in, in tarantino are the guys from like the 90s generation that still every one of their movies is like an event david o russell man come on uh, i'm back Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> those are like those are like the three that can still get the budgets that they want regardless yeah. of their movies you know uh clear some sort of a a, a threshold for profit but um you know there's always the, big ensembles always a-list actors people are going to take a pay cut to go and work with them i think on the master it was like they were all staying in a motel but I heard you get to be in the master I know. Well, I remember Tiffany was was Laura Dern's assistant at that time. And I guess she said that when Laura Dern showed up, she was staying in a hotel. Laura Dern was like, this is where I'm staying. Oh, OK. <laughs> he's, he's serious. Well, and uh, particularly with Wes in the last few years, at least for like the principal cast and crew, I feel like he does this thing where he will find a small town take over the town, employ people from the town. Like the cast will live in like some weird old hotel or like some weird ranch. And what occurred to me watching this was, I don't know if he was making movies like that when he made The Life Aquatic, but it feels like that is, Steve Zissou is a much more belligerent man than I think Wes Anderson probably yeah. is. But it's that same impulse of like, we're going to live this adventure and kind of yeah. see what we can find. You know, there's a, there's a few different, chapters in his career were like what i was saying with like pta is like the trajectory kind of changed where it was like after there will be blood he finally gets recognition and gets his oscar nominations doesn't win and then he has the master inherent vice phantom thread and it feels like he's like i'm gonna go in an opposite direction of what people maybe might be expecting of me and i'm just gonna kind of try things and and a lot of those movies became challenging i think for even some of his more dedicated fans and it seems like wes's early movies were maybe the ones that were more polarizing for regular audiences. And then he kind I, of found a groove that at least works. Cause I feel like the ones now, and we can get into it obviously, but like, and I, and I don't say, and I, I'm not saying this like in a snarky way. I think we talked about it. I feel like because we live in a culture that's so obsessed with brands and franchises and cinematic universes that Wes Anderson there, it's a familiar comforting feeling to go to one of his films i think for like an average moviegoer who maybe like is only superficially like aware of him because sure. you kind of know what you're going to get and it feels like you're getting that comfort release when you watch a movie of his now I'm, I'm not trying to say that in like a like a shitty denigrating way at all i'm just mean that like i think that's why he's managed to continue to find success and like his, his movies have only become more successful in a way i hear that completely i would counter that with saying that i think particularly Asteroid City and the French Dispatch. I don't think people love those movies. I think they're pretty sure. the people who get it, get it. And then the people who don't are like, fuck this. I'm not into it. I think you're right. I think there are people who take what he does at face value and get like a dopamine hit out of it. And like, whatever, you know, I they're mean, getting the, they're getting the dread effect. <laughs> yeah, because look, am I, I I can't lie. Like when I sit down and his movies start and I'm back in that world, of course, I feel that same thing. But what I also feel as I get taken on a journey, particularly through the last two movies, is like a sense that he's really broadening his scope to talk about whether or not it's successful in the eyes of someone who for whom his style doesn't work. You know, the French Dispatch, whether or not you think it's a deep exploration, it is about upheaval and change and the way stories capture change and the way societies shift and certain people go one way while other people go another way. And Asteroid City, to me, and I'm not, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, is a critique of what he does. It's like, why do I tell these stories 
Why do I tell them this way? Why am I so married to these affectations? And then it becomes a form of like a spiritual inquiry. And like, again, for the folks that get the rush out of it and, you know, whatever, again, like better that than fucking Blue Beetle, I guess. Right. You don't come I, on this podcast and talk about Blue Beetle. Not it's not even Blue Beetle. It's it's any of the big movies no, that know. came out, like The Flash or the Indiana Jones. These yeah. movies that are sold to us as a good time and are just kind of dull and lethargic. And I think that. In, I think what it is, man, and I'm sorry this is a long rambling response, but it's a general downturn in critical thinking about film as an art form yeah. where I don't know how you could – I can see watching Asteroid City and being like, this is too fussy or this is not for me. I do not see how you can watch that and say, oh, he's just playing the hits or, oh, this is just a version of a movie he's made before. Especially when I think particularly – Everything from Tenenbaums to Darjeeling, those are family movies. Those are movies True. explicitly about family. And I don't think he's made one of those since Fantastic. I guess Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll, the other thing I will say, because as you know, like I don't respond to like the last U.S. Anderson movies, but I guess yes. my whole thing is like, OK, well, like if your average moviegoer, I'm saying this as unpretentiously as I possibly can. <laughs> no, just like an average moviegoer goes to see it or a young person goes to see like a new Wes Anderson movie and they really like it and they're captured by the style of it. And then they respond to that, like maybe it will inspire them to seek out his older films, but also maybe it'll inspire them to seek out films that, that have inspired him. Can mm -hmm. always go down that rabbit hole. And I think that's always great. I mean, uh, dude, back in the day, man, I feel like just even with his soundtracks, I discovered so much. Oh, like, for sure. No, that's what I realized watching Life Aquatic too. I was like, man, it's funny how a lot of these songs so cliche to use in a movie now because they're right. so iconically attached to this film. Mm. Yeah, it mm. seems like it seems like the first few that he writes with Owen Wilson. And then who does he write Darjeeling with? Darjeeling is... Darjeeling is a very conscious attempt to write with Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman. Who right. He sort of lived the movie with them. I think you can very much interpret that they are the three brothers. They become very close collaborators of his. Noah Baumbach, who wrote Life Aquatic with him, I think writes Fantastic Mr. He does. Fox. Yeah, yeah. And then they haven't done anything since then. At least for me, like I recognize it. I would like to hear how you feel about it but i feel like you can very much tell the difference between an owen wilson collaboration and a noah bomba collaboration and a roman coppola collaboration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i guess for me it's always like wes's writing has gotten less interesting to me while his directing has gotten more interesting and proficient in a way and i think that's the thing that attaches me more to the early films is that like there's something that owen wilson and noah bombach bring obviously we know that noah bombach can be a more like especially at that stage in his career a more biting or like acidic writer yeah and there's I think definitely an edge to it that i feel like is maybe attributed to him also with owen wilson there's a there's a sadness that he kind of brings to them that that I find really interesting. And um, I think Owen Wilson brings a lot of sadness and a lot of humanity to those first three films, which all yeah. feel, except for Tenenbaums, they feel like they take place in some heightened version of the world that we know. And I yeah. think that what I heard was that his, his writing involvement decreased with each subsequent film. So he was very heavily involved with writing Bottle Rocket and not sure. As heavily involved, also because at that time he was, you know, becoming a huge a star. star. Yeah. I think Noah Baumbach, yeah, I think there's a meanness in Noah Baumbach's work and his worldview that that is an interesting kind of counterpoint to Wes's worldview. Steve Zissou is very unkind to his unpaid interns in, in The Life Aquatic. And that is like a joke that I can see playing out with like a Ben Stiller character in a Noah Baumbach movie. And I think with Roman Coppola, I think lately Wes, like I remember he said something where he was like, I went to Roman Coppola when I was writing Asteroid City and I said, I have an idea about a thing I want to do in a desert town. And then I also have a thing I want to do that's about actors in the 50s and kind of the birth of the method. And maybe they'll work together, maybe they won't, but I want to find a way to see if they can. And I think yeah. there's like a formal playfulness that I think like Roman Coppola, whatever you think of him, I think he's, he has a lot of facility where he's done a lot of different things. Like he's worked in a lot of like practical levels of filmmaking, like assistant directing, cinematography. He's a designer and he craft just, service. I, <laughs> you know, he does craft service. He's the only Coppola to ever work in craft service. But yeah, I mean, look, man, I, I do miss the Owen Wilson stuff. I even think the two movies that Baumbach wrote with Wes, there's a dynamic that is very like in the life aquatic in the life aquatic in the life aquatic <laughs> in the life aquatic it's between owen wilson's character ned plimpton and 
uh, Willem Dafoe's character, Klaus. Yeah. And in Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's between uh, Jason Schwartzman's character, Ash, and Christofferson, who is his cousin, voiced by Eric Anderson, Wes's brother. And it's mm-hmm. this very specific dynamic that is very like big brother, little brother. And the little brother gets is very jealous of the big brother, like getting the praise and like wants to kind of assert themselves. But it's like there's very like small man energy, particularly like in Willem Dafoe's sure. performance in this film. And that feels like a thing that they are interested in together as writing partners because you know with the exception of like Chaz Tenenbaum who sort of inhabits that archetype it's not a character type I see a ton of in the rest of his movies yeah and then he also writes with a guy named Hugo Guinness but that's like Hugo Guinness he wrote Grand Budapest Hotel with right 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 and Hugo Guinness also has a story credit I think on French Dispatch sure but yeah I mean at this point with Life Aquatic he's coming off Royal Tenenbaums he's working with because Bottle Rockets was Sony um, mm-hmm. That was a James L. Brooks production. And I will just a quick aside after rewatching it last night for the first time in forever. I think that might be my favorite. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. I don't know if he'll ever make a funnier movie than that. No, that it's so funny. Fucking. It's so funny. Like all this shit early on with Bob when they get to his <laughs> house and Owen Wilson has a line. Why does Bob have such a fucking nice kitchen? I know. Kitchen? <laughs> I was going to say that line is off screen. He's like, how does some asshole like Bob get such a nice kitchen? Everything with Bob where they're just like, shut the fuck up, Bob. <laughs> It's a thing that I know you and I personally love, which is like, it's these guys who like grew up in the suburbs and want to be tough so bad. And they just aren't. Yeah. It's such a fucking great movie. I do. I do want to rewatch some of the other ones. I haven't seen Darjeeling in a long time and I've always had mixed feelings on that one, but I I do want to revisit it. Yeah. I watched that Afterlife Aquatic, which again, I hadn't seen in a really long time. It was the first one of his movies I saw in theaters. I remember renting Rushmore when I was probably too young to get it. I don't even know why I rented it. I just did. I rented from Blockbuster <laughs> when it came out and I remember watching it thinking it was kind of cool, but I don't think I fully appreciated it. And then Royal sure. Bombs, I really loved when I watched it at home. And then, yeah, Life Aquatic was when I was working at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. So, yeah, I remember being very stoned and seeing it and being like, this is tight. But- I saw it at an advanced screening a month and a half before it came out with my dad at the Grove. Okay. And I remember it was like a great crowd where everybody really laughed a lot and like had a very emotional reaction to it. And my dad to this day hates that movie. <laughs> and he had this very weird reaction. And maybe you've had this, I know I have, where you leave something and everyone loves it. And you're like, what the fuck was that? Like, why don't I get it? <laughs> you know? like, fuck this. I've definitely had that many times. Uh, yeah, it's frustrating. Fuck you, Steve Zissou. Supposedly Cousteau and his cronies invented the idea of putting walkie talkies into the helmet. We made ours with a special rabbit ear on the top so we could pipe in some music. The Belafonte, home to Team Sisu. Scaled crew of deep sea divers, adventurers, documentary filmmakers. Action! Led by internationally renowned oceanographer Captain Steve Sisu. But there remains one form of life about which Captain Sisu knows very little. You're supposed to be my son, right? I want you on Team Sisu. The answer's yes. Well, it's got to be. I'll order you a red cap and a speedo. Oh! This will be Team Sisu's most ambitious adventure to date. I'm going to go on an overnight drunk, and in 10 days, I'm going to set out to find the shark that ate my friend and destroy it. What would be the scientific purpose of killing it? Revenge. You must swear, legally swear, that you won't kill that shark. I'm gonna fight you, Steve. You never say, I'm gonna fight you, Steve. You just smile and act natural, and then you sucker punch it. Are you finding what you were looking for out here with me? Quiet out there tonight. Can you hear the jack whales singing? Beautiful. I wonder what they're saying. Well, that was the sludge tanker over there, but there you go. I'm not even going to really get into like too much of the plot of Life Aquatic because I feel like a lot of our listeners probably have some association with Life Aquatic in the early West movies. It's also kind of the same exact setup as Tenenbaums. Uh, Owen Wilson plays Ned Plimpton and he comes back into his his estranged possibly father's life, Steve Zissou. And he brings him aboard his boat and they go on an adventure. There's some fun fish that are designed by fish. Henry Selleck, which something I didn't remember until I watched it this time. I forgot that Henry Selleck designed all the like underwater stuff. 
he's really like he I feel like he's done that too in a lot of his recent and like his live action films, like even Grand Budapest and Asteroid City have stop motion in them. That's not even like, you know, getting into like Isle of Dogs and, and Fantastic Mr. Fox, which are entirely stop motion. I think his new movie that was just at Venice also is the same thing. Um, um, Say You George, David Bowie songs. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me watching Life Aquatic again this time was that, especially because the only West movies that I've watched recently are the newer ones. I haven't revisited a lot of the older ones. So to see Life Aquatic, it feels kind of like, it feels like the last time, I think Darjeeling's kind of a connective thread movie where it's like a little bit of the old and a little bit of the new. But once he gets to Moonrise, it feels like a new era. Life Aquatic feels like the end of definitely, a, I would say like a more explicitly like darker era of his Mm -hmm. work where there's like a there's more of a darkness to it i was really struck i think by how efficient the camera work is in it but doesn't feel like fussy he still it still feels like he's kind of open to being surprised by something in that regard and sure there's there's moments in it where the camera goes handheld and it's almost just like it, it kind of takes your breath away because you're so mm. which is an interesting thing i think when you watch some of his films like because everything is so kind of perfectly framed that when the camera gets a little loose it really catch, catches you off guard in a way which is yeah i remember you had a similar reaction because he does that too in the french dispatch which is like a super cons- yeah. visually composed movie but then he goes handheld during that one scene at a riot at a student protest and yeah. It, it does kind of jolt you out of your boots a little bit. And like yeah. even the sequence, there's a pirate raid in the movie and the sequence where his entire crew on the Belafonte are tied up. Like he's doing very weird, almost like Oliver Stoney things with the, with the camera there. Yeah, yeah. That he just, he wouldn't do that now. He would find a different way to visualize that. It does feel like a little bit, and I know you get it in Ten of Mums too, but it does feel like he's starting to build up more of that visual style here of, uh, how would you describe it? I guess kind of tracking through an environment to show you different rooms. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, like living dioramas kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like he's definitely like starting that here, but it still doesn't feel quite as like precise the way that it is now. Rushmore has a framing device, but it kind of doesn't matter. It's just like seasons. It's mm-hmm. like a curtain will close and it'll be like autumn and then it'll open and it'll be an autumn. Tenenbaums is framed like a book. This is like, I guess, sort of framed like a film within a film. And at this right. point, he's really giving that structure a workout. Like movies like Grand Budapest Hotel and Asteroid City, there's like three or four layers of that shit. Yeah. So it does feel like this is him beginning to do that. I think Bottle Rocket is probably the only movie he's ever made without a framing device of some kind. Yeah, that and Darjeeling both feel the most stripped down in a way. And even Darjeeling has a flashback in the middle of the movie, which just throws everything kind of into a new light and a prologue. So like, there's no framing device, but it is formally kind of playful. No, for sure. Yeah, I guess like at this point in 2004, this is also his last movie with Disney, with Touchstone. Mm-hmm. Which I wanted to ask you because I couldn't find anything on it. Why does he move from Touchstone to Fox Searchlight? Do you know? I don't know. I, I think around the time Darjeeling came out, Fox Searchlight was beginning to become kind of a bastion for a certain kind of movie. I'm speculating here, but it could be something as simple as the fact that the movie was like, you know, a financial and not only right. financial, but a critical failure. You know, now at this point, Wes's movies do fairly well. And they, you know, the reviews are never like scathing. They're, if anything, just mixed sometimes. But yeah, I, I don't know definitively. But I, you know, this movie is and was kind of regarded as a failure. Like if you look yeah. at like, I, I I try not to read too many ranked lists, even though I've, you know, written a few myself. But if you read, you know, ranked lists of his movies, I feel like a lot of people place this one near the bottom. Yeah, which is crazy to me. Yeah, like we said, it cost 50 million. It made 35 million worldwide. 25 of that in the US. Yeah, I mean, it got a platform release and it did well in limited. And then when it expanded, it kind of just fell apart. It has a D cinema score. Oh, wow. I guess I can see how people would maybe find that parts in the middle of it. has like a little bit of a lull or like a kind of. I I also just think, look, watching this movie now, knowing what we know about Bill Murray is a slightly different experience. And I don't even really want to get into the Bill Murray of it all that much because that's a tough one, man, because Bill Murray has done some shitty, shitty things. And it's one of those things where even people who acknowledge that can be like, yeah, but I like Scrooge or I like Caddyshack. Like everybody's got one Bill Murray movie that they love. You know, this movie 
Steve Zissou's kind of a dick, much yeah. more so. I think for a lot of people who likability, you know, is something people talk about when it comes to like wanting to watch a character. And like Royal Tenenbaum is a piece of shit. He's yeah. a con man. He's racist. Not a good guy. Cheats his own family out of money, but he's played by Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman is, if there is a guy on earth who can make a shitty person magnetic and compelling, it's Gene Hackman. And it's not that Bill Murray can't do that, but Royal Tenenbaum's energy in that movie is very up. Everyone else around him wants to kill themselves. And he's like, no, let's go to the cemetery and eat cheeseburgers and get into trouble. And Steve Zissou's vibe is he's he's like stoned and checked out. He's depressed. Yeah, and I think I love that fucking energy, man. I mean, <laughs> what is Wes Anderson's relationship with his dad? Do you know? I think that I, I don't know that much about that enough to be able to speak on it. I will say that he has said in interviews, and this is by his own admission, that he has sought out father figures in his life, like older mentor figures. And I feel like that is... He tried that with Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman said, I'm not fucking interested in that. Put your big boy pants on. Got out of here. Yeah, he kind of gets it with Bill Murray, though. I mean, Bogdanovich, yeah. you know, Brian De Palma, who apparently um, is a huge fan of Asteroid City, which is funny to think about. I don't know what his relationship with his father is like. It definitely feels like, you know, he grew up in Houston and, you know, there's stories about him as a kid drawing because he wanted to be an architect for a while, which you really get in all of yeah, his movies. Yeah. And he would draw these landscapes and these interiors that looked like cosmopolitan Europe, probably like the type of shit you see in like the Grand Budapest Hotel. So he's one of those guys who I think his mind is going to take him around the globe. His 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 yeah. curiosity is global. And some of the great movies that I've discovered as an adult, whether it's Ozu or Sacha Jiray or Jean Renoir, are global in that like if you're curious, and I love that about him, man. I mean he's he wants to kind of do it all and know it all. And and you know that's what this this movie to me is about dislocation. And I think there's there's a sense of like, all right, we're on an adventure and then you get to a certain point and you're like, wait, why are we here? Like, what are we doing? There's a whole period in the middle of the movie where you're kind of just chilling. And I'm cool <laughs> yeah. with that. Like, I'm fine with that. Again, like, I think there's something about his earlier movies. And I guess I, you know, I can maybe falsely attribute that to to Wilson and, and Baumbach's work here. But like, I just find them so much funnier than the newer movies. I guess the comedy is just more my vibe or what I'm looking for. Sure. That, you know, and that's just my own personal preference. But I think he's so good at writing these really sour older men. And yeah. It's something that even like in Asteroid City, like Tom Hanks's character is like dabbling in that world. But like he's still pretty like decent. Like there's nothing particularly shitty about the guy. Well, no, but again, in that movie, the cast is so big and the scope of the movie is so big that you just don't get the time with that character that you would get to illuminate those things. The only characters I think in that movie that you really get that are Jason Schwartzman's character and Scarlett Johansson's character because you spend the most time with them. But yeah, I mean, I think part of it, man, is that Wes has become a parent in the last few years. And you hear this with artists who become parents where it's like, you know, I think Park Chan-wook said this when he had a kid where he was like, there's certain things like I just won't go to anymore in my art. There's certain dark places. And obviously Park Chan-wook's version of a dark place, very different than Wes Anderson's definition of a dark place. But, you know, I I think one of the, I mean, I think Asteroid City is about so much, but I think it's about parental anxiety and a a world that is dying and is chaotic and and crazy that you like have to be like, how am I going to raise kids in this world? And I think, I think with this movie, I think, I really think Tenenbaum's this movie and Darjeeling are this weird trilogy. I think by the time he gets to Darjeeling, he's stripped away a lot of the kind of extraneous stuff. But in this movie, I, I remember watching an interview with him and Noah Baumbach where they talked about what their inspirations were. And Baumbach, I couldn't tell if he was joking, but he basically was like, we pitched it like it would be like an Eric Romare movie on a boat. I guess I get that. I mean, I mean, I would have never thought of that, but I guess maybe I'm not as familiar with Romare's work to or not familiar enough to to connect the dots on that one well it's familiar in that like it's people who are sort of emotionally constipated and can't manage to like say what they actually want to say and like a lot of like desires that are kind of forbidden or maybe borderline taboo but you know again i feel like that's a tough thing with wes is like comparing him to other people becomes a tricky thing because he's at this point you were talking about brands early earlier he is a brand you know whether he wants to be or not yeah no but i think it's interesting too because i see it as like because we, you know, for listeners that don't know, Nick and I write together. I think it's it's an interesting thing that 
happens sometimes when we write too, and something that we both bring to the table is that, and I think you can almost connect it through the Wes and the Paul Anderson connection thing where it's like what you respond to as a viewer and as a writer and as an artist. And, and there is more of a restraint in the feelings in these characters in these movies. They're not always able to articulate themselves or they're not always able, they're not always interested in articulating themselves. And there's a restraint there. Whereas like in, especially the early Paul Thomas Anderson movies, it's very much like, no, let me tell you everything that's on my mind. Let me fucking. There's a lot of room for both. No, exactly. And I think that that's something I notice when we write is that we both respond to those two things. So sometimes that can be at odds with us where it's like, yeah, I mean, there's even a line in Asteroid City where I'm, I'm going to fuck it up. But Scarlett Johansson says, like, we're two people who don't express the depths of our pain because we just don't want to. Yeah. And it's this idea that, like, pain is so private. And it's one of those things where you could tell someone your pain and, you know, it's it's not always going to Unless you're Julianne Moore and Magnolia, your pain is not private. Your pain is <laughs> the man at the pharmacy. Suck my dick. That's what's wrong in you. You fucking call me lady. How, and how lucky are we that those guys are still making some of the best work oh, in their yeah. careers? Because, like, there's other people from that generation, like Alexander Payne, who, like, that motherfucker made downsize. And then, um, like, Spike Jones, who's a genius, like, I don't know if we'll ever get another Spike Jones movie. I've heard rumors, but that's all they are. I'm sure he'll make something. Um, I fucking seen, hope so. Speaking of Spike Jones, have you seen the, uh, you remember the old uh, skate video? Yeah, right? With Spike of Jones and Owen Wilson? Yeah. Oh, I, dude, I, yeah. I love that clip with Owen Wilson. <laughs> He's hilarious, man. He's a born skater, dude. I really like his performance in this movie, which is, is I can I can imagine people not liking it at the time because it is very manner. Do you know who he based it off of? No. Will Patton. Wow. So, And I was like, how did he know Will Patton? And I was like, oh, we're Armageddon. They worked together on Armageddon. Wow. How so did you find that friends. out? That's amazing. I stumbled oh, he... across some interview where he, oh, I guess, shit. based his, his, his accent on Will Patton. Yeah, because there's moments where I'm like, is his accent working? And then you just kind of roll with it. You're like, yeah, fuck it. Who cares? I also, I was thinking about accents too and like, I was talking to our, our mutual friend Morgan the other day and he was telling me about, I forget what it was. There was like an interview with somebody talking about like, well, is the accent like that accurate in a movie? And I forget the actor, but they were like, who gives a fuck? Do you really care? Do you right. really care if that accent is that accurate? Is that really going to like, and it is funny how we, we do become so obsessed with accents that we don't even really probably even know if they're that accurate or not. Or like, I remember no, about Leo not. and blood diamond where you're like, is that an accurate South African accent? <laughs> you're like, bitch, how the fuck would you know you live in South Africa? I don't fucking know. It sounds funny to me because it's a fucking crazy accent, but yeah, I've heard people, I know we were just talking moments before we recorded this. We were talking about the, the trailer for Jeff Nichols movie, the bike riders. And yeah. I feel like every time Tom Hardy has given a performance, probably since the Revenant, like whether or not the accent is regionally accurate kind of doesn't matter. And there are people no. who are like, what is he saying? And then no, but he's also a guy who just kind of gets away with it. Like we talked about Kate Winslet and triple nine, obviously an accent. That sure. Even if you aren't Russian, you're kind of like, I think this is crazy. <laughs> but like to, to that point, that, accent in that movie as silly as it is doesn't bother me because it's fucking triple nine that same ballpark accent in something like steve jobs which is a lot more serious minded yeah quote unquote respectable that bugs me a little bit more I love the Ridley Scott approach when they asked him about Last Duel and he's like, who gives a fuck? He's like, do you really want to hear Ben Affleck try to do a French accent? Just I mean, shut and, up. and that was and I mean, also with House of Gucci and I'm presuming yeah. with Ferrari, it's like everybody suddenly becomes an Italian diction expert. Yeah, exactly. Although apparently Adam Driver's Italian accent and that is much better. Well, and even in House of Gucci, it's like. It, it, 30 minutes into that movie you're like oh this is like a camp opera this is like if ryan yeah. murphy made something that was actually really good and like you accept it on those terms i'm gonna go ahead and give fucking michael mann and and adam driver the benefit of the doubt and assume yeah. that those guys did their fucking homework because they always do that's also why i think a guy like jared leto works so well in house of gucci is because like normally Cowboy. i find him so annoying but in that i'm just like no this is it this is the pocket that you need to be <laughs> this in all is the how you use jared yeah, I'm just because he also is like committing, but it's like, is that a proper accent? I don't know, but he's so invested in that guy that you're like, fuck it, I'll roll with this. He says something about taking a shit and he calls this shit chocolato and he yeah. somehow keeps a straight face, which I don't, I, that's why I'm not an actor. He literally he, says on that scene, he's like, and it tastes like shit and trust me, I've eaten shit, I know. Yeah, <laughs> trust me, I've eaten shit. <laughs> which is crazy. Um, but back to Life Aquatic, speaking of accents, Kate Blanchett's accent. Kate Blanchett, yeah. 
Um, Jane Winslet Richardson. Yes, who I guess he did say he was Anderson admitted. He was like, I was thinking of Kate Winslet, which I'm is sure. yeah, if you name a character Winslet, I'm like, I don't know how you could not think of that. It's almost Catherine Hepburn adjacent, which is funny. This is the year she plays Catherine Hepburn and Winslet. No, Oscar, I, so <laughs> I and I think her Catherine Hepburn in that movie is perfect. It's great. In the, in the aviator. I mean. Yeah. 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 And then again, it's like, I think we also associate accents with how familiar we are with an actor. So if it's an actor you're really familiar with and you hear them doing a pretty like different accent, even if it feels whatever, quote unquote accurate or not, you're just like, well, I'm used to this person sounding a specific way. So it's hard for me to remove myself from that. And Courtney, so, Courtney could probably back me up on this, but I feel like she's almost doing like a mid Atlantic 40s screwball comedy accent at times. And the way the screenplay is written, because it's the dialogue at times is very barbed. Like the scene with her and Steve, where she's telling him that aspects of his movie seemed fake, which feels very, again, very self-critiquing, very self-referential. That stuff needs to move because nothing else in the scene is moving besides the fucking whale in the back of Steve's head. You know, and that cadence lends itself like, again, a lot of actors who work in his movies talk about like it's a really specific cadence that you have to capture. Yeah, it seems like even more so now, but some actors don't like it as much because it's like, I don't want to say all the characters sound the same, but there is a voice that carries every there's an overriding voice. Well, I think that's the reason that Bill Murray does work as well as he does in all of his movies, because Bill Murray is somehow. He is that voice. He is. So it's like Bill Murray's dry enough. So he's dry Mm. with him and Owen Wilson. I think there's an inherent sadness about both of them. Bill Murray seems like a guy. He just has the face of a guy who's has a lot of regret, even yeah. if you want to admit it. And Owen Wilson seems like a guy who's just kind of unhappy in this yeah. at times. If you put him yeah. in the right part, that's why Bill Murray to me is always like the most interesting actor to be the lead of a, of a Wes Anderson movie because he does kind of give you the best of all worlds in that regard. And he's so good here. Like I really do think that this is one of his best performances, especially after Asteroid City. I would add Jason Schwartzman to that list. I yeah, think he's kind of adapting into now like the older sad guy. You know, at one point he was playing like these kind of wound up little brats mm-hmm. for him and he was very good at that. But, you know, in Asteroid City, he has like a Zisu energy where he's just broken. There's something yeah. in him that just doesn't work right. Mm-hmm. The other flip side of that is that you have these actors who are sort of have like spark plug energy where like Royal Tenenbaum, because he's played by Gene Hackman kind of energizes everybody around him. And I would actually argue that the same is true of uh, Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel where Ray Fiennes is just such a naturally exciting uh, magnetic actor that is so engaged with the material that he kind of enlivens because a lot of the other movie actors in that film are at the same register uh, which is you know I love that film it's my second favorite movie of his I think yeah Bill Murray there's you know whatever you could say about the guy he there's no one else that could have played this character I don't know if it's true or not by the way Uh, do you no I don't I haven't heard from her in 30 years. I guess it's too late now. She never contacted me, you know. Yes, I see. You're supposed to be my son, right? I don't know. But I did want to meet you, just in case. I appreciate that. Like when he's introducing Owen Wilson after he finds out that he could be his son, or he just <laughs> introduces him so casually, he's like, "This is probably my son, Ned." You so know, Michael I, Gambon's Osiri Draculius. Yes, and when he finds out his cat died, Owen Wilson's like, "What kind of cat was?" It? And he says, "Who gives a shit?" Gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I will agree with you. I I don't think you see that many scenes quite like that in many of his later movies. F, if any. Yeah. And I think that this is like a time where he can kind of get away with having, I guess, for lack of a better word, expository dialogue that that works. It's very blunt, but it it um, it works for the tone and the characters, especially when you have Bill Murray delivering it. Like when Owen Wilson's like, why didn't you try to contact me? And he just very plainly just says, like, because I hate fathers and I never wanted to be one. But is that exposition? It's not. It, that's what I mean. It's like it's not exposition. It's such a blunt line that like in another movie or another writer director's hands might be dragged out into a few different lines. But that 
also feels like a Noah need... Baumbach line. Yes, exactly. Yeah, where it's just like I can just say this. It's okay. I can, Im- I can just say it. I can kind of imagine like Jeff Daniels' character in yeah. Squid and the Whale saying that. Yeah, and maybe that's why I like respond to like some of those earlier movies too. Like because I I think when I watch like Royal Tenenbaums or this, like having a dad that I was not as connected to growing up and that I felt was selfish. So yeah, like Royal Tenenbaums or Squid and the Whale or things like that. I'm like, yes, I can identify with this and I recognize the humanity in these guys, even if they're pricks. I guess I miss some of that in some of his later works. I think he's kind of chasing this idea of a perfect movie. And he every time he makes a new one now, he gets pretty fucking close to making the one I think he sees in his head. But what's interesting about Darjeeling is how kind of jagged it is and how, yeah, yeah. again, scrappy. Like, it's a movie that's short, this, too. That and Bottle Rocket were like 90 minutes. Most of his movies are. Even, like, I just rewatched Grand Budapest. I want to say Grand Budapest can't be longer than 100 minutes, 105 no, minutes. No, no, no. This is his longest movie. It's 111 minutes. You I'm feel going. it a little bit. Like, not, not in a bad way, but... A Again, without getting into the weeds, like there's a crash, a literal crash and a burn and also an emotional crash and a burn at the end of this movie. And it ends kind of tragically. But I think that this movie is, too, about like a lot of his other films that does tap into the depression and, and grief that a lot of these characters feel. And I think that's why people it became a cliche and for obviously like young millennial girls to respond to Margot Tenenbaum and Royal Tenenbaum. Sure. But yeah, there was something about that character or Richie Tenenbaum. There's a blankness. There's an, a vacancy. And it's unfortunately it can be adopted into a very Tumblr approved aesthetic. I think the mistake that gets made in looking at it exclusively as like a Tumblr thing is like the reason a lot of people love Margot and Richie Tenenbaum is because they are beautiful and chic, but their exteriors are, without sounding corny, they're an armor to keep the world away. And I think Wes is so amazing. I think one thing, and I wrote about this, I just wrote a piece about him recently. A thing that he doesn't get enough credit for is he has this ability to distill these very profound sentiments that you would otherwise just write in dialogue into gestures. Mm -hmm. Like in this film, uh, Ned Plimpton and Klaus are at each other's throats basically the whole movie klaus does not like that he's been replaced as steve's kind of second in command and at the end of the film they have a zisu like flag or banner yeah and it's revealed that ned has sewn an insignia of for klaus on the banner which is a way of saying like you're my brother and i love you without actually saying that yeah or in tenenbaums when gene hackman gives ben stiller a dalmatian after the dog has been run over by yes. a car. And it's not it's not going to make up for all the shit he's done, but it's a way of saying I'm sorry without, <laughs> again, without resorting to the words. Yeah. And I just think that's a thing that, like, it gets me, man. You know, even when I watch his movies as an adult, it's the reason I've never really, it's one of the reasons I've never really been able to just, like, write him off. Sure. No, I understand that. He has such a talent for those small gestures and then simultaneously those very blunt proclamations that can come out of nowhere. Like, right. I can't remember the line now, but in Royal Tenenbaums, I always think of that moment after the dog dies when Ben Stiller is lying in the street. I've had a rough year, Dad. I know you have, Chazzy. Well, he doesn't cry. There's no like melodrama. Yeah, exactly. His voice just kind of breaks the way that your voice breaks when you're about to cry, when you're trying not to cry. And he says, I've had a rough year, dad. And he just says, I know. I think that's the thing, man, is like the older I get, we were joking about Hong Sung Soo earlier, but like it's a similar thing where the best way I can describe it is having a light touch, you know, sure. and and I think you're very into and I love this about you and your taste. You're very into the big swing and you really I am, but I admire the light touch, I think, because I think we respond sometimes to things that we feel that we can't do. So I look at something with a light touch and I'm like, oh, man, I'm amazed by that. I want to know how you did that. When something that has a light touch is bad, it's boring a lot of the time. Whereas if something is swinging for the fences and it's bad, it's still like, well, shit, this is at least interesting. Yeah, sometimes it can feel slight or sometimes whatever. But and then also just to briefly touch on, I'm just going to say my my MVP for this movie is Willem Dafoe. I think he's just so, so perfect in this. Every (laughs) every time he's on screen, anything that comes out of his mouth. There's not a false note. I love at one point that that Steve Zissou just says Klaus was a bus driver. Um, and <laughs> yeah, no one in his crew is really qualified. No, but I love to. I, I never noticed where Steve Zissou doesn't know how to read a map. No. <laughs> and I never realized that before, but I was like, oh, this guy, he's reading a map and he's like, would you rather go an inch or four? And like, well, we should also say that Steve is very stoned. 
for a lot of them. He's faded as fuck. He's, he's faded. It's the only time Wes has come close to making a stoner comedy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's why I think so many people I remember growing up in high school, I think people that didn't normally like movies like this really liked it because it was it does have kind of a stoner vibe to it. I love the use of life on Mars in this. That song is so big and kind of grand mm-hmm. and, and, and you feel really big emotions and you feel that it should almost be used for a, a bigger sequence. But I love that he's- And it's also just him it. getting away from the party too. Yeah, he just- walks away he's just like i want to be alone yeah he hits a fucking joint at the edge of the boat and comes back and the world slows down yeah yeah yeah. but that's kind of how it feels in that moment and like it's it's beautiful again we were talking about the soundtracks earlier and like you know when i had royal tenenbaum soundtrack i remember seeing the trailer and being into it because they had judy as a punk in the trailer and i was like yeah you know and then i got the soundtrack and i was like who's the velvet underground who's elliot smith like that movie got me into those bands and you know even like the stooges needle drop in this it hits like a ton of bricks and i think he's sort of stopped like he'll use pop music in his films now but it'll be like muffled in the mix or like you'll hear a snatch of it for like 30 seconds. Yeah, that was me getting the Biodome soundtrack and saying, who are butthole surfers? <laughs> uh, <laughs> who is Toad the Wit Sprocket? Oh, fuck Toad. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the Cable Guy soundtrack. Who else is on the Cable Guy soundtrack? Jefferson Airplane. Well, Primitive Radio Gods. Come on. Oh, fuck yeah. That song still goes hard. The ultimate 90s serenade song. It's Primitive Radio Gods. Porno for Pyros. <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Silver Chair. Cypress Hill. Toadies. Wow. And filters, hey man, nice shot. Oh yeah, that's the basketball scene. That's right. Yeah, but no, this obviously has a, a really beautiful soundtrack. Obviously, the other iconic song is the Sigaro song that's used at the end for Which is not on the soundtrack. Like if no. you bought a copy of it back in the day, it was like, and it's it's kind of the song of the movie. It is. It's the Sega Rose had a they were pretty big in movies in the early 2000s. They're used at the end of Vanilla Sky in a really beautiful way. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Listen, I spend a lot of very uh, sad nights trying to write stuff listening to Sega Rose as a teenager. So. I saw Sega Rose live. How was it? Back in the day. They were unbelievable. Uh, the two things that I remember was that the lead singer just was weeping by the end of the show, like singing, <laughs> and just like tears streaming down his face. Fucking wet face. Just Pretty like. Nice. And then. I swear this is how I remember, but maybe this didn't happen, that like someone was playing a cello or a violin and they just smashed the shit out of it at the end of the set. But that that might be bullshit. My memory might yeah. be playing tricks on me. Oh, I love that. I mean, it's beautifully used here. It's it's one of the, I think, best scenes of any Wes Anderson movie. It's that... haunting, kind of. It's one of the best moments, I would say, Bill Murray's uh, career. I, my favorite yeah. line is when he just says, I wonder if it remembers me. Yeah. It's yeah. such a beautiful line and he's so good and still like restrained too. That's yeah. the thing. It's like, it's still never like a big moment, but even seeing that guy crack, even the slightest. I feel like the last line of the movie, which is, this is an adventure. Yeah. Was something that I never, never really understood. I never really tried to understand it too much. I think watching it again this time, because it's like, I think the theme of every Wes Anderson movie is his characters are control freaks and they try to hyper organize their existence. And instead they get like death and suicide and depression and all these things that throw their like perfectly ordered world out of balance. And Steve has this idea of what his life will be as an adventure. And instead Mm -hmm. his best friend is dead. He's lost someone who might be his son. And he's sitting on the steps outside this film festival where a film he's directed is playing. He's completely alone, except for this little boy who's speaking to him. Klaus's and nephew. That's right. Yeah, Klaus. Werner. Yeah, little Werner. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. Like, this is life. This is the adventure. I'm not going to be what I wanted to be when I was a boy. This is who I am. It's a very like world weary sort of acceptance that he just plays so he underplays it. I mean, Bill yeah, Murray absolutely. underplays yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I feel every day sitting outside the restaurant I work at. Well, <laughs> this is an adventure. <laughs> this is an adventure, I guess. Huh? Well, here we go. Yeah, I love I read something that said that um, it was an interview with Wes Anderson um, 10 years after the movie came out, which I guess the year the Grand Budapest came out. And he said, I remember Scott Rudin, our producer, saying to me when I was writing it, what is the metaphor with the shark? And I said, I don't know, but I like that we're thinking of it as a metaphor. Let's just let it be a metaphor. That's the thing you find out about some of your favorite directors is you go, wow, what did this thing mean? And you ask them and they go, I just kind of thought it sounded cool in the moment. I don't know. I just liked it. Yeah. I mean, with him, it's like the worst thing that a work of art can be is obvious or like Mm -hmm. didactic. And his movies, you know, whatever they are, they're very rarely obvious and they're very rarely didactic. So, yeah, I'm sure that line of thinking has probably served him very well. I think this movie is really special, really beautiful. 
very sad. It's this kind of amazing encapsulation of a certain kind of indie, cool, like early 2000s thing mm-hmm. that just like will always have a place in my heart. And yeah. yeah, it's it's not my favorite West movie, but I mean, my favorite West movie changes pretty much every year. Although Tenenbaums yeah. is kind of Tenenbaums is kind of the steady, consistent it's, number one. Yeah, it's kind of like his do the right thing. You're just like, and, I know it's and the bo- obvious answer, but it's kind of Bottle Rocket, Grand Budapest, and Tenenbaums don't change. Those are yeah. like constantly in the top five and they're so different those three movies are so different yeah i think it's like bottle rocket's my favorite but it's also i think world town of is the best culmination of all of his skills coming together to me and i recently rewatched fantastic mr fox which is not even close to being my favorite but i was like this is fucking great great movie movie." i think it's the same way i'm like punch drunk love is my favorite but i'm like i can't deny the scope of something like boogie nights or magnolia i mean pta is another guy who I have like a core two or three favorites and that the rest of it, it changes a lot. Yeah, I'm sure you already knew this, the story of James Gray in this movie. Oh, uh, yeah, we uh, talked about it on the We Own the Night episode, I think. Yeah, James Gray was supposed to play the Noah Taylor part. Uh, I love this. He left when he learned that he was going to spend five months in Italy. No, it's pretty fun. You'll come. We'll be in Rome. It'll be amazing. Gray recalled doing his best Faye Wes Anderson impression. How long? Two, three weeks? And I'm thinking, no way, no way. I didn't understand why he wanted to cast me, but he's a friend and probably as a consequence wanted some form of revenge. He quipped self-deprecatingly. So I said, okay, and we were going to go. And then I got the schedule and I was like five months at the Cinecita. I could just feel mental illness creeping in. So I said, no. And he was like, what are you talking about? It's Rome. You got to come. I said, five months in Rome. And all of a sudden I felt like Rupert Pupkin. I can't give you the six weeks. So he dropped out. Dude, I love James Gray. He's the fun. He's the funniest one of those guys. He's so great. How relatable is that? <laughs> Five months in Rome? No, 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 no. Oh, uh, my it. mental illness is. Creeping I could feel in. mental illness creeping in. And one other little tidbit: Seymour Cassell has a brief role as Esteban. Esteban, yeah. Esteban, R. R. eaten by the shark. According to Roger Ebert, Cassell once told him in an interview many years previously that he had always wanted to be eaten by a shark in a movie, and he got his fucking wish. If you're not against me, don't cross this line. If yes, do. I love you all. Are you sure? Yes, I am. I don't understand. Why? What do you mean? Wait a second. What are we doing? You said cross the line. If cross the line, if you're going to quit. Oh, do it again. I misunderstood. Yeah. So this movie is, like we said, it's his only rotten movie. It's a fifty-seven percent. It's barely rotten. It has an 82% audience score, despite that D cinema score rating at the time of its release almost 20 years ago, which is crazy. Jack Matthews of the New York Daily News said, if there's anything more tiresome in film today than hip irony, it is forced irony. And here comes a boatload with Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic. Tyber of the Boston Globe said the film's metafay title alone is an example of why some people adore Anderson and why he drives others absolutely crazy. The Miami Herald called it inert, said it's strangely inert. The Chicago Tribune said a comedy that seems to have most everything going for it, but the ability to make us laugh. Wow, burn. Uh, Richard Roper said, this is one of the most irritating, self-conscious, and smug films of the year, working neither as a dark comedy nor a character study. Thumbs down. No uh, thanks. <laughs> this guy's got his thumb up his ass. Let's see here. Yeah, I mean, but Ebert gave a kind of a mixed review. Ebert gave it a mixed review. It's, it's technically considered rotten. He said, the damnedest film, I can't recommend it, but I would not for one second discourage you from seeing it. I love that about Ebert because he'll be like, look, it's not good, but you should see it. <laughs> yeah. He always kind of like puts it back on the reader a little bit. It's not for me, but hey, it could be for you. More tits, I would be down. Listen, if Kate Blanchett would have pulled out a titty and there is a female character in this movie who's topless in pretty much every scene, but there probably wasn't enough of that for Raj. Not for Raj. It didn't catch his eye. He wanted Kate. <laughs> I love pregnant titties. Robert Wolanski, the Dallas Observer, giving, I think, a read into Wes Anderson before he kind of becomes what he is today and saying the more technically proficient Anderson gets as a filmmaker, the more emotionally barren his movies become. Till at last, the life aquatic drowns in a sea of self-indulgent touches that delight the filmmaker, but distance the film goer who wants to love the director and his characters, but just can't. Not anymore. <laughs> I, I can't. David Edelstein and Slate said, this one is a mess. Um, <laughs> it's a mess. It's a mess. Oh, damn it. A mishap and mawkish tragic comedy bordering on self-parody. Its ambitions deserve respect, though. Why is it that so many people think this filmmaker is the voice of their generation? Is their generation that vacuous? 
I do feel like this was a period, this and Darjeeling were when people started to get tired of it. And then Moonrise and Grand Budapest really bounces back. And I think those are like two of the best reviewed movies of his career. The Moonrise one is still baffling to me. That is the one that yeah, I'm that's shocked. that's a mo- that's the only movie of his I don't love. I even love like Isle of Dogs. But like yeah. Moonrise, it's I've tried, man. I revisit it often and I just can't. It's not for me. But I feel like now it's kind of petered out where like if you look at like Metacritic, not to invoke sure. the rival review aggregate site on which you you're say that name on this podcast, you know, we're <laughs> Listen, sponsored by Rotten this... Tomatoes. <laughs> no, but like his movies will be like in the mid 70s, whereas yeah. like Grand Budapest has like an 88 on Metacritic. And I think Life Aquatic has like something in like the 60s or something. But finally, a snippet from a very long and interesting review by by our guy Armin White, a big oh, Wes Anderson shit. fan. He will go to bat for the big ones he goes to bat for are Wes Anderson, Coen Brothers and David O. Russell and Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler and Spielberg up until he got fucking political. Armin White really likes Blended. He does. It's so interesting reading old Armin White reviews because there is a huge distance just between like once Obama gets elected, something switches in him. He never (laughs) quite can go back. He also was like a not very well-known writer until he trashed The Dark Knight. And then everybody on, you know, Rotten Tomatoes was like, are you fucking kidding me? Who the fuck is this guy? (laughs) Who is this guy? That and The Social Network, I remember, were the big ones because it ruined their perfect score. But Armin White used to write fairly, I would say he used to be a better writer. But he said, this is Anderson's big one, his eight and a half, his Moby Dick. The eccentrics don't like to admit their privilege. It's part of the middle class advantage most filmmakers enjoy. But that awareness saturates every opulent comic frame of the life aquatic. Anderson doesn't take privilege for granted. He basks in it, scrutinizes it. Uh, Such poignant movie humor marks Anderson's visual style. Widescreen still life compositions that suggest homo fables. I don't know what that is. I thought I it said either. porno fables at first. Um, <laughs> Widescreen stills that suggest porno fables. I mean, uh, he's <laughs> sort of on to something there. Yeah, he says his method is all exposition, but with diverse, detailed elements that are wholly original. Throughout, Anderson embraces the disparate, as in the Italian scenes that mix Romanesque columns and metal machinery, old and new archaeology and technology, the comfortable, familiar, and the disorienting unknown. It's part of that American eccentricity to obsess over growing up. Anderson's obsession has genuine daffy substance. Wow. I kind of see where he's coming from. His old reviews are great. Listen, he, in the same review, it's so funny because in the same review, he mentions his, you know, other uh, Anderson contemporaries. And he talks about David O. Russell's uh, I Heart Huckabees, which he loves. And I think the only PTA movie he really loves, which is Punch Drunk Love. And I think it's because it's so indebted to Popeye and Altman that he, um, he really loved it. That's right. He's a PTA hater. He hates PTA, but he loves, it's funny also he, because he, he mentions Noah Baumbach in this review without saying anything about his family or anything. Yeah, that's a whole thing. I know. They got beef. They got uh, like family dynasty beef. Armand White also wrote an article about Life Aquatic in 2006 that was in Slate Magazine that said, Dear Wes Anderson, why does it take you so long to make a movie? Anyway, who's your MVP? My MVP, and we didn't have a ton of time to talk about it, is Sayu George, who wrote the beautiful score. Yeah, Sayu George uh, is a wonderful musician. His music is such an integral variable in this film. The first time I watched Asteroid City, I didn't realize he was in it because there's so many people in the movie. Who is he in it? He's one of the cowboys. There's like a gang of cowboys. Yes, yes, yes. And one of them is Jarvis Cocker from Pulp, who is in Uh many Wes Anderson movies. And the other is Sayu George. And he just has a very distinctive voice. And there are a couple moments where you hear that come through. And I was like, oh, that's I mean, but it would be easy to say Wes is the MVP of this. But I think in summation since we're getting to the end here i you know one of the things i do love about wes is i think he sees the best in his collaborators i think he really understands what everybody he's not like people love to attribute everything to him and obviously it's his vision but he works with people who he knows can elevate the story and he sees beauty in the people he works with and i find that very inspiring and he i have the vinyl for this film on on lp in my apartment and i listen to it and there's in every one of the lps that are soundtracks for his films there's a little story about kind of how the soundtrack came to be and hearing him write and talk about say george and his music and kind of what it added to the film is just it's beautiful man and yeah say george is my mvp i respect that as i said mine is willem dafoe Totally solid call. Love Willem Dafoe. Love Klaus. I love when Owen Wilson slaps him and he says, but you already warned me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he I says, mean, I owe you one. When, when Bill Murray says, you know, if you aren't with me, you can cross this line. And he's the first one to cross it yeah. so proudly. And he's like, really? Are you sure? Yes. 
Wait, what are we doing? He also, there's that amazing right. moment where Bill Murray says, don't you know, we always thought of you as our baby brother. And he says, I always thought of you and Esteban as my dad's. Yes. <laughs> I love that he has a mohawk in some of the videos from like the old. Yeah, uh, it's very like, it's very Romstein. It's very like yes. industrial German. Obviously, I don't think either one of us find this to be an auteur misfire because no. I think it's one of his best. I love Life Aquatic. No, it's not an auteur misfire. I think that it was seen as a misfire at the time and hopefully hopefully the years that have passed have sort of corrected that would you say moonrise is his only misfire for you god it's like i don't even know if i would call that movie a misfire i just think it's people see that movie and they see a masterpiece and i've seen it so many times and i've kind of studied it and i've tried to see the masterpiece whereas like grand budapest was a movie that i didn't love the first time I saw it. And it took me seeing it like two or three times to be like, oh, this is actually like maybe sure. his best movie. Would I call it a misfire? I don't know. I guess it's the closest thing to one. Yeah. Okay. Fuck yeah. That's Life Aquatic. If you want to stream Life Aquatic, it's it's only on Hoopla, which Weird. I don't always recommend because they have pretty bad quality. It's Life Aquatic. You can find it. By the Criterion. It's probably like $20. I had the old Criterion DVD from the original release, which still up, it still looks good, but I, yeah. I definitely it made me want to get the Blu-ray. And if you feel like revisiting Bottle Rocket, like I did, it's on Hulu. Masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Fucking amazing movie. Nick, I know you've told people before where to find you, but tell them about your Substack because that is new. Yeah, that's really where you can find me. It's where I'm the most active. Uh, it's called We're Getting There. It is a Substack where I post uh, once a week for free subscribers, twice a week uh, and more for paid subscribers. And yeah, I write about films, music, stuff, podcasts. I wrote about I wrote about Rotten Rewind recently because I'm a fan in addition to being on the show sometimes. But yeah, We're Getting There, Substack. If you want to join for a paid subscription, great. If you want to join for a free subscription, great. But uh, I have a piece about Wes Anderson on there. It's a two-parter. Where I, yeah, check it out. It's great. I would highly recommend it. If you're looking for recommendations for film, this guy's always logging. He's always writing. He knows what's hot. Please, please check out Nick Subsack. It's fantastic. And yeah, we'll be back next week with a movie that I have not seen in, God, uh, let's see, 15 years, something like that. We're going to be talking about, uh, wait, what year is this? Yeah, I guess 15 years. I don't know. 2023. What day is this? We're going to be talking about Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain. I have no recollection of this film, but I'm very curious to revisit it. Is the whale rotten? No, but it's almost rotten. It's like a 65%. I don't know if I could, listen, I could probably recall the whale from memory enough to talk about it. Um, I don't think I could do that movie again. Gambinos. Um, (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Gambinos. Anyway, if you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, thank you. Leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. Or if you don't like us, tell us why. Leave us a review and tell me why you don't like me. I'd really love to know. If you are looking for early access or if you're looking for monthly bonus episodes, you want a little more rotten content, head on over to our Patreon page. You can sign up there. If you are on Patreon already, thank you so much for your subscriptions. And a very special thank you to our top subscribers, Royce Burke, Victoria Kruger, Aiden Breen, Andrea Ferris, ASR, Devin Hansen, Erosayano, Jeannie Unrell, Constant Karina, Graham Redman, Neil Fuller, Matthew Hayes, Alex Colpin, Brittany Barker, Britton Chance, Brody Anderson, Eric Hockman, Jade Yankowski, Madeline Dugan, Mary Keatlin, Koiski, Ryan Oliver, and of course, Nick Laskin. Last but not Thanks. Least. Thanks for having me, man. This was fun. Oh, oh, oh.